Before we begin the class, uh, tonight's class was dedicated by my father-in-law, Reb Mordechai Weiss, and this is in honor of uh, his father-in-law, which is my, my mother-in-law's father, my wife's grandparents, my children's grandfather, Baruch Tzvi ben Avram Aryeh, whose yard site was on the 13th of Tevis, this uh, past, I think, Friday. Um, may his neshama have a very great aliyah to the greatest of heights, and may he channel lots of brachas down to his entire family, all of his children and grandchildren. We have a son named after him as well, Baruch Tzvi. So may it be a big schus for everyone much, much, much bracha for the entire family, and mazel and parnasa barachava, and only nachas from the children and grandchildren, and good health, good health to my father-in-law, my mother-in-law, and only, only good. Thanks for that special dedication. The CD this week was sponsored by a very unique and special organization called Bone Olam. They provide... Um, funding for those who need fertility treatments. This is the greatest mitzvah uh, to bring children into this world, uh, particularly in our days, as will be explained in this CD, how crucial it is to bring as many Jewish children as we can into this world. So if you're inspired by this CD and you want to make a contribution, uh, go to their website at boneolam.org. Also, if you need their services, boneolam.org. Thank you so much. I would like to give a very big thank you before I start um, the class tonight. Uh, we're coming off a super exciting day today. A very exciting day at Mayon today, which Baruch Hashem, with the help of uh, our amazing, amazing, dedicated um, supporters and friends and those who so frantically worked the phones and uh, the emails and the WhatsApps and the Facebooks and, and everything to pull, to pull it through. In the last 24 hours, we raised, thank God, over $130,000 for our center. It was very, very special. So I really want to thank everyone um, from the bottom of my heart. Um, it was overwhelming to see how powerful the response was yesterday. As a, once we started, it was like nonstop. It was very, very special, and it really means a lot to me. So I want to thank those, all those listening to this year, and all those. Some of you I don't know. I didn't recognize some of those names, and it's very, very special. And those of you that I do know, 
just really, really want to thank you for helping us out so that we can continue this holy work of spreading the light of the Torah, inspiring Jews, and preparing ourselves, all of us, for the upcoming coming, for the upcoming coming of Mashiach. Um, may it happen speedily now. Um, this week, we begin reading a new Torah portion. We read um, the book of Exodus, the book of Shemos. Fascinating story, painful. Describes the Jewish people going into the exile, the suffering, the hardships, difficulties. So it, it's, it's uh, really um, interesting when we read, um, just get a little bit of a, a kind of a feeling of what does the Torah describe about the first exile of the Jewish people? Um, how does the Torah describe it? What, what, what was their experience? So obviously we learn about the, the enslavement, the slave labor camps, the torture and the like, uh, the building of the cities that the Jewish people were forced to build, these massive storage cities for Paro. But there is an underlying something that sometimes is missed when you're reading the story. And it's like, okay, so we went into Egypt. Egypt decided, first we went in as, as heroes, because Yosef was the one who saved the entire country. But then um, the Egyptians uh, had a change of heart towards the Jewish people. As the Pasuk also says, a new king rose, whether he pretended not to know Yosef, or he, was, or he really didn't know him, or he made believe he didn't know him, whatever the story is. Um, the Egyptians had a change of heart towards the Jewish people, and they decide that the Jewish people, they dislike them, and they enslave them. And then, after the enslavement got, became unbearable, and finally in the end, God remembers his people, and the time of the redemption arrives, and God calls on Moshe Rabbeinu to come and redeem the Jewish people from Egypt, and the ten plagues come until the final plague, the plague of the firstborn, and the Jewish people are freed from Egyptian exile. That is the simple story. But if you look a little carefully, you see that there is an underlying uh, idea that, that maybe one can miss. And that is that what's the cause for the enslavement? What really triggered the enslavement? And something that the Pasuk does speak about a lot, but for most people, this element is like kind of secondary to the story. The main story is how did we become enslaved? And the main story is about the enslavement, the suffering of the enslavement. But there is, the real story is really the story of the children. The, the story of Mitzrayim is the story of the children in the sense that what had triggered the entire enslavement was that the Egyptians got nervous and they got very, very, um, very, very, ups, very, very, um, uh, let me say, uh, very disturbed with the incredible population growth of the Jewish people. It was that the, the Pasuk goes ahead and describes that there was an explosion, an explosion of, of the population. The Jewish people came down to Egypt with 70 members in their family. And it's listed in Parshas Vayigash, all the 70 names of the Jewish people that came down to Egypt. And then within a very short period of time, they, they numbered in the hundreds of thousands 
and pretty quick they were reaching in the millions. Now, um, how did that happen? So the Pasik describes that Ubnay Yisrael, it's interesting, the first thing the Torah says about, it says, the old generation died, the previous generation died, Ubnay Yisrael and the Jewish people, Paru, they multiplied, and they swarmed, and they increased, and they became very strong, very much. And the land of Egypt was filled with Hebrews. It was filled with Jewish people. That's what it says. Um, and that's, the, that, that's like the important information, is that the Jewish people suddenly increased, multiplied like crazy. So uh, the Medrash tells us, when we say that the Jewish people multiplied, um, how many are we talking about? See, the Torah uses interesting terms. The Torah uses the term, instead of paru, which is a general word for multiplying, the Torah uses the word yishritzu. Yishritzu means they swarmed. And swarming is usually, you use, the Torah uses it by insects or by fish. You're talking about creatures that lay like 30 eggs. So obviously if the Torah is applying the word yishritzu, um, swarming, we're talking about a... a, 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 a uh, a very, very unusual uh, a birth. So the sages tell us, Rashi brings that they were having six babies at a time. And it wasn't only like an extraordinary event that someone had six tuplets. Over here it was happening like all the time. They were having six babies at a time. There is a medrash, in medrash Rabbah, with the medrash there's another opinion. They were having 12 at a time. Not six at a time, 12 at a time. And then there's a third opinion in the Medrash, which obviously is totally insane. But the Medrash says they were having 60 at a time. And it was 60, 60. And the Medrash says it's an opinion. And it says, well, don't be bewildered about that. Well, the scorpion lays, uh, can have 70 eggs and 70 little scorpiony babies. So the, why not? If a human being, if God applied those, those rules or that uh, system to the Jewish people. So they're having 60 at a time. But even if we're just going to say they're having 6 at a time, it's enormous when everybody's having a lot of babies and each time it's 6. So the, the population was just growing like crazy. And this is what disturbed the Egyptians. Now interesting, I saw an interesting Rajbam. On the words, because the Torah uses the words paru, they increased, vayishritzu, they swarmed, vayirbu, they became beni, vayatzmu, they became powerful, b'ma'od, ma'od, very much, and then they filled the entire world. So the Rajbam says paru, they, they multiplied means they became pregnant, bihirayin, or they conceived and they became pregnant. Vayishritzu, they swarmed, is referring to birth. In other words, the pregnancies did not terminate God forbid, early. They had complete healthy pregnancies to the point that every pregnancy was followed by a full birth, not chas uh, that there should be any, any miscarriage. Finally, vayirbu means that none of these children died at childbirth. Or young. means In addition to childbirth, none of the, there was no infant, there was no death in infancy. All of them grew up. That's Vayirbu. Gadlu Vanasa Haktanim Gidolim. The children all became. So, like this, even if you have a large population, but then you have, you start to eliminate those who die, those who miscarry. 
and then those who die as in infants, especially in the olden days when you didn't have, uh, you know, just, just in Europe, how many kids didn't make it um, back in, before, you know, 60, 70 years ago. And thank God, due to today's, uh, you know, antibiotics and everything else that we have that fights off disease, that thank God the rate is that, that you know, the, 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 the great majority that grows up. But, but in Egypt, no, none of the babies died young. And not only that, Vayatsmu, they became strong, he says, they didn't die even when they were older. They lived long lives. So basically, that's what was crazy, creating such a... In other words, you're beginning with six at a time, or 12 at a time, or 60 at a time. And no one is dying at any of this during this entire period. So before you know it, it's a crazy population. So we need to understand, I mean, God was in a rush. He wanted to make the Jewish people into a great big nation. But why such miracles to bring and to make the Jewish people so, so many? In, 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 and you see this, especially if God knows that this is going to enjoy, annoy the Egyptians. So why is he doing this to create such a crazy population? I mean, he's, 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 he's putting us into, he's going to put us through one of the worst periods in Jewish history, the worst suffering as a result of this, okay? Now the Pasuk describes that what does the king of Egypt say to his people when he sees that um, there's a new king, it says, and he says to his people, the first anti-Semitic statement, okay? He says to the, the people, Behold the people, the Jewish people, they are becoming too, too many and too powerful for us. So again, what is he complaining about? He's complaining about their explosive population. That's what he dislikes. And he says, um, So now we got to really, really brainstorm over here. We got to come up with a very wise plan to stop this population. You got to ask, why is he so frantic? Why do the, the major security council of Egypt have to sit down for this major meeting and they're worried about the Jewish population. You can say simply, I mean, they're a country and these are foreigners who are suddenly coming into the country, similar to what the Muslims are now doing to Europe, where, the Europe, where Europe is becoming so overflooded with Muslims to a point where many of the countries are going to be canceled. Their, 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 nat, their native peoples are suddenly going to be diluted and, 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 and dissolve in the greater Muslim, um, um, and many countries are worried. So you can say that's what was worrying the Egyptians, but the simple solution would be close the borders, or in, in other words, if you don't like them, kick them out. But they didn't do that. And it's not like they were slaves already. If they were slaves, you don't want to kick them out. But they weren't slaves yet. The slavement only came later. So kick them out of the country. Why, 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 why didn't they kick them? And initially they liked, they, you know, these were the heroes. But again, you know, that great, um, um, uh, you know, popularity of the Jewish people was over. They're beginning to make trouble. We don't like them anymore. So get rid of them. How many times were the Jews expelled from country after country? So Egypt could have expelled them. But they didn't do that. It seems like they wanted to keep them, but they wanted to stifle their, their, pop, their, birth, their birth rate. They wanted to stifle their, their population. They wanted to minimize them. And if we take a look at the Medrash, we see that the entire scheme of every Every, everything that happened further in the parsha is all just for this particular thing. What they wanted was stopping the children, stopping the birth of children. That's where they came up on this plan of, of making the Jewish people work. 
They figured by enslaving them, first of all, they're going to tire them and weaken them through the enslavement. And through that weakening, their bodies are going to be weaker and they're not going to have such an ability to populate. This was their first, their first and initial plan was they're going to stifle the, 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 the great explosion of, 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 of the birth of the Jewish people, of the population of the Jewish people by doing what? By, by weakening them through, through slave labor. But the plan was really a little bit more vicious than that. As the Medrash says, the reason why they opened up these labor camps was that they took the people to work quite far from their homes. It wasn't like, you know, just around the corner. So they were building these cities at a, quite a distance. And they worked them and they gave them these huge quotas of bricks and, and what they needed to build, the amount that they needed to build. And it was impossible to get the work done normally from 9 to 5. So the people had to stay out already till 10 o'clock at night. They were working till 10, 11 at night. And then they said to the Jewish people, this was all part of the plan. They said, what are you going to go home now? You have to be back at the work site at 7 o'clock in the morning. So the time you're going to go and the time you're going to go back, you're not going to get any sleep. You're not going to get any sleep. And tomorrow you're going to whine and kvetch and krechts and, and sigh that you can't get the work done. You're going to complain that it's impossible. So therefore, don't go home. Stay out in the fields. This was their plan. To keep the Jewish men from going home. Simply by doing that, they will stop the birth of the Jewish people. This was the entire reason why the enslavement came. Was it was a scheme to stop them from having babies. This was the plan. The Medrash goes ahead and tells us a very beautiful Medrash that despite this plan, God says as follows. Let me read the words in the Medrash. God says, um, Elohim. So God says to the Egyptians, I said to Abraham their father, to Avram their father, that I am going to increase their children like stars. I will bless you, and I'm going to increase your children. And you're trying to outsmart me? That's what God says. You're trying to outsmart me? Nira, let us see whose, whose plan is going, to, is going to work. Your plan or my plan? Let's see if you're going to be able to stop them from, from having, from, from this, you know, uh, population growth. Okay, basically it was the women really who, who volunteered and the women were the ones who saved the day. Had the women not stepped up to the plate in this incredible time, then God forbid it would have, they, they, would, have, they would have succeeded. But over here it was the women who, who, who knew it was their calling. So Rabbi Kiva, Rabbi Kiva Darshins expounds, because of the righteous women, that were in that generation, this was the reason the Jewish people were redeemed from Egypt. Also, what did they do? So at the time that they would go draw water, so it was a special miracle. The women would go draw water for their families, whatever, for their home, and they would go get water. God would provide for them Little fish, little fish, not little sardines or whatever kind of fish. Bikadeim in their in their buckets. How many? A lot. 
and when they would draw, drew out the, when they would draw the water, it would be half fish. They weren't they weren't going fishing. They were just going to take water, but their pails that they pulled out was half half little fish and half water. And they right away had the sense what they need to do with that. Then they would come, they knew their husbands are hungry and their husbands are not coming home. So they would go out to the labor camps. The and they would make two each one, they would put up two two pots. In one of them they would cook the water. They would take stones and they would make one 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 for a pot where they would cook hot water. And the other one they cooked the fish. And then and the husbands that were so broken and so exhausted and so brutally beaten would be they would refresh them by giving them to eat, or they would wash them, their wounds. The they would bandage them, they would they would they would give them to drink of the hot water or and then they would have marital relations with them between the pots as it got dark, so they were out in the fields. And that's where they became pregnant, the women from the men. Then what happened? The Kimashemis Abrois, as soon as they became pregnant, Buzz and they came back home. Then when it came time to have their babies, they had their children out in the field. That's why under the apple orchards, as it says. And then uh, Hashem immediately, Hashem sent an angel to help them with the childbirth. At the end, um, these little babies had, because they left the babies out in the field. It was too dangerous to come with the babies back home. And God provided for these little children. And they grew up in the fields. And when the Egyptians found out that, these, that somehow there's like a whole, it's a, <laughs> the fields are filled with babies, they came out and they sent out uh, um, um, plows, tractors, so to speak, to plow the babies, to, like, just to kill them all. And God took all these babies and pulled them in the, under, the, under the ground. And they were hidden under the ground. And then they actually realized that the, every time they came, they heard the noise, they heard the crying, the shrieks of children. They would come running over there, and then no one was there. Then they figured that they must be hiding under the, under the ground. So they took these deep uh, plows, and they started plowing, but God kept them just enough beneath the ground that they would not be plowed over. And then, when they grew up quite a, to an age where they, came, they, got, they came back home, hundreds, thousands of children coming out from the fields. So the population did not stop. So this plan of Paro, that he planned to separate the men from the women through the harsh labor, did not succeed. So the next plan was, if that's not working, so this is where the Torah describes how Pharaoh called, Paro called the, um, the midwives, and he asked them to kill the babies during the, at the time of birth. And he said, kill the boys, you'll let the girls live. And this was his, uh, his plan. Um, the Medrash actually says that Hashem is saying to Pharaoh, he says, you're an idiot. He says, your plan would have worked better if they were in the opposite. If you would have killed the girls and let the boys live. Because like this he says, if, if, you're, if you're letting the girls live, and so even if let's say a lot of them, the boys will get killed, but if there will be some men survivors, then each man can marry ten women. So they will still be able to at least build the Jewish people. But if you're going to kill, if you would kill the, the, the women, and you would only let the boys so there wouldn't be any women, and a woman is only allowed to marry one man, 
Okay? A man is allowed to have technically according to today's days we don't practice that. Right? It's polygamy, we don't do that. But conceptually, halachically, a man is allowed to have more than one wife. But a wife can only have one husband. So if there's only a few women survivors, it would stop the population. So that's where Paro mis, miscalculated. But in any case, that didn't either work uh, because, the, the, because the midwives didn't listen to Paro. So in the end, Paro had to throw the Jewish people into the Nile. Okay? The, the babies. That was the last decree. Literally, if all this doesn't work, we have to kill the, kill the children. So we need to understand, again, going back to the beginning, what's this frantic... Um, why is Egypt so Mitzrayim, so crazy, so terrified of the population of the Jewish people? And again, as we asked earlier, if you don't like them, kick them out of the country. But then they seem to have wanting the Jewish people there, but they wanted them to be few and not many. But on the other hand, why is Hashem so pushing? Why is Hashem so driving the population to the point that we need such miracles? And then we said something interesting. As a reward of the women who they helped the population, they did whatever they did to have Messiris Nefesh, so to speak, self-sacrifice in order to have, to, 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 to have, to have many children. And the Medrash says it's in, because of them that the redemption came. So the question is, why is this exactly related to the redemption? It's a nice thing. You know, Miriam did something very nice. She didn't kill the children. Miriam and Yocheva, these were the two midwives. They didn't kill the babies. God gave them a beautiful reward. They're going to have big tzaddikim, Moshe. The king. But why the reward, we say, the reward of the women is that the redemption came. It must mean that the redemption is connected to this, that there were a lot of children. Almost like saying there has to be a lot of Jews to be redeemed. And why can't we be redeemed if we're a little Jews? Why do we need to have a lot of Jews to be redeemed? Another interesting thing is, we see like almost to a certain degree, it's very painful, that all this population growth, which became like so, nor- so, so, so uh, um, numerous, it like in a sense was in vain. Because in the end, four-fifths of the Jewish people didn't go out. So only a fifth ended up leaving Egypt. The other ones all died. So you can say that the reason why they needed to create such a large population is because we needed to go to receive the Torah, and the Torah needed to have a certain amount of people, millions of people needed to be there, forgot to give the Torah. But you see that four-fifths of the people that were born didn't make it. They, they made it, think about it, they made it through all the hardship, all the miracles God provided, just that there should be a lot of Jews, and in the end, only few of them left. So there has to be something. You can't say it's about the leaving. It's not about the leaving. There's something about just having a huge population being born in Egypt. Why? What can possibly be the reason? And why is this getting the Egyptians so angry? And finally, why the method of killing them was to throw them into the Nile River? I mean, that's pretty brutal. You see, Paro is kind of concerned with the media. He doesn't want to look like this horrific monster and tyrant. That's why he actually spoke to the Jewish midwives. I mean, if Paro wants to kill the babies, why can't he just have Egyptians come into every, to every, um, wherever the, you know, and can kill, kill the children. Initially, he doesn't want to do that. He asked the Jewish midwives to do that. And the reason that is because he can claim it was accidental death, that the kids just died during child. But suddenly, this plague occurred that everybody, that, that something is happening and they're, they're all miscarrying, or they're all, they're all during birth, all, all the babies are dying. So he tried to do it in a way where he can kind of cover up his tracks that, it wasn't, that he was not behind it. All right? 
So, but in the end, he goes ahead and acts so brutally that he's taking the little, little tiny babies and throwing them in the river. So why are they throwing them in the river? So to try to understand all of this, uh, it becomes very, very clear by um, a fascinating Zohar, where the Zohar says, and it, uh, the Zohar says something which sounds very cryptic, and I'd like to, uh, I'll read the Zohar for you. This is not a Zohar in this week's Parsha. It's a Zohar in Parsha's Vayigash. All the way, the last piece of Zohar in the Parsha of Vayigash, we learned it two weeks ago, in which it speaks about the Jewish people coming down to Mitzrayim. So the Zohar says a fascinating thing. But again, the, the Zohar is cryptic. And then what we're going to do, we're going to offer a, comment, a commentary by Rav Shneer Zalman of Liadi, the Balatanya, uh, in, his, in a sefer of his son called Biure HaZohar, in which his son, the Mittler Rebbe, writes down the Maimarim of his father that he heard, which he interpreted passages on the Zohar. And it's a fascinating interpretation. We studied it here two weeks ago, Thursday night, um, in a Thursday night class. And I was so excited about that that I feel that I, 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 was, I said already then that I'm going to share this on Parsha Shemois on, um, on, the, on the Monday class. Okay. So the Zohar says like this. Um, again, in, 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 um, in the end of Parsha Vayigash, it describes Yaakov coming down to Egypt. It says that Yaakov was afraid to come down to Mitzrayim. And it says that Hashem appeared to Yaakov, and Hashem said to him, Al Tira, don't be afraid, from going down to Mitzrayim. I'm going to make you into a great nation over there. In Egypt, I will turn you into a great nation. And the question, obviously, is, it's like, how is Hashem encouraging Yaakov should go to Mitzrayim? Hashem is telling him, you know, you know why you should go to Egypt? Because over there, I will make you into a great nation. So the question is, but why, if you want to make me into a great nation, why do I have to go over there? I mean, going over there is going to spell a lot of trouble. Egypt is a bad place. Yaakov took one sniff and he says, I don't like what I'm, what I'm, what I'm sensing in Egypt, right? I don't like it. Egypt was, you know, um, was trouble for the Jewish people physically and spiritually, especially spiritually. So it was a very, very, very immoral place. Yaakov does not want to take his family it's not the, the, the best place to raise a nice Jewish family. So, so God says to Yaakov Avinu, Yaakov doesn't want to go. So what does Hashem say to him? Don't be afraid because I'm going to make you into a great nation over there. If you want to make me into a great nation, why can't you make me into a great nation over here? See, by Avram, Hashem also said that to Avram. He said, Lech lecha, go away. May Arzacha from your land. But by Avram, it's not a question. Because Avram is living in Mesopotamia. He's not living in the, necessarily a holy place. And God is telling him, go to the land of Israel. Ooh, the land of Israel is destined to holy land. Even though at that time it has not yet been sanctified, but it had an intrinsic holiness. It had all the potential. Israel, Yerushalayim, is called the head of the world. It's the head of the world. Egypt is called Ervasa Oretz. The nakedness, the, 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 the lowliness, the most, most, uh, the most disgusting place of the world. So why would God tell Yaakov that go down to Egypt and over there I will make you into a great nation? It seems like that the Jewish people could not become a great nation living in the land of Israel. They can only do it when they're living in the land of Canaan. I'm sorry, in the land of Egypt. So let's understand why. So the Zohar says like this, Tachazi, come in here. There is an interesting verse in Parshas, uh, in, in, uh, in Shir Hashirim, 
In the first chapter of Shira Shirim, you know, Shira Shirim is a love song between Hashem and the Jewish people. And God is talking about the beauty of His bride, and, um, which are the Jewish people. And the Jewish people are singing about the, 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 the great... Um, the greatness of Hashem's, Hashem's praises. We're singing God's praises and speaking about how our charming prince, how handsome he is, and we describe various different things. And God describes, and He doesn't mince any words, to speak about the beauty of the Jewish people. And it's, the descriptions are very, very, very physical, right? And then there's one passage which is kind of strange. Hashem is talking about how, how impressed He is with, with, his, with his kala, Israel, the Shekhinah, the Jewish people. And he says, "Lisusasi berichpe paroi, like the horses and the chariots of Paro. Dimisich reosi, I compare you, my bride. I'm comparing you, my bride. You know what you remind me? Imagine someone takes his wife out for dinner. Do you know what you remind me of? of? Down the road there is a ranch. You know the horse. Well, horses are very beautiful animals. I have to say." But I wouldn't necessarily give that as a compliment to a woman and tell her she's as beautiful as the horse. So what is God saying like the horses of the chariots of Paro? I compare you, my bride, to the horses of the chariots of Paro. So it seems like the Zohar is perturbed by that question. Why are we compared? Why is Israel, why is the Shekhinah, which is the mother of our souls, compared to the horses of the chariots of Paro. What does it have to do with the horses, the chariots of Paro? So the Zohar says, Tochazi, come and see. Isrisichin l'smola, there are chariots to the left. Beraza the sitra achra, on the side of the other side. The Isrisichin liyamina. And then there are chariots on the right side. Beraza the le'ela the kedusha, on the side of holiness. The ilin lekavel ilin, and these are opposite these. There's chariots on the right side, and there's chariots on the left side. The chariots on the left side are representing the impure chariots of the sitra achra, the other side, the side of darkness. These are the 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 the, uh, the um, uh, weapons. These are the the um, the tanks, so to speak, of the klipa of the unholy. And then there are the chariots of holiness. And Hashem is saying, uh, the Zohar says, these are of mercy, compassion, which are the ones of holiness. And these are of judgment. Generally, the right side and the left side, the right is associated with holiness, and the left side is associated with the unholy. Like we know, the Yetzatov is on the right side, the good inclination, and the evil inclination is in the left side. Now let's understand, Kedusha also has a left side. That's why we know Avram is to the right and Yitzchak is to the left. Right? So the Kedusha has, we say Friday night, Yamino, Smalo, Beneu, Kala. Right? The right and the left, there is unholiness as well. But in general, the holy is stronger up to the right, and the unholy is stronger on the left. Because they derive their energy on the left side. So the Zohar says, there are chariots to the right, these are the holy chariots. And there are chariots to the left, and these are the unholy chariots. And what, is it, what, and what are we saying? Hear this. And now when you understand this, you understand what it means when God says to the chariots, to the horses of the chariots of Paro, I compare you my bride. What does that mean? It means that just like there is the chariots of the unholy, and what are the chariots of the unholy? 
The chariots of the unholy are the forces of klipa. The chariots of the unholy are the... the now, let's think a second for one, for one moment. The Zohar is saying, we compare the chariots of Kedusha, which are the Jewish people. The Jewish people, the Shechina, and our mother of all Neshamas, the Shechina, she is the chariots. This is the chariots of Kedusha, of holiness, and they stand direct opposite to the chariots of the unholy. One side versus the other side. But now let's re- this really doesn't make any sense. According to this, what he's really saying is, let's think about it. The chariots of Paro were what? These were, Paro was the, the mightiest army. Paro's chariots were the tanks. These were the, today's days would be modern day tanks and airplanes. His instruments of warfare. In other words, Paro's killing machine. Paro had a massive killing machine. Now God is saying, just like he has a killing machine, I have my killing machine as well. And who is that? That's my beautiful bride. You are compared to the chariots of Paro. Say, that doesn't make any sense. How can we be compared to the... To the and the Zohar continues. Let's see. And when God does judgment in Egypt, kol dina kahu gavna mamish. All judgments that he does in Egypt is exactly the same like the chariots of the other side. And literally like the other side. sitra, Just like the other side. Hear these words. Katl the apik nishmasin kills in order to take out, to extract a soul. Just like the other side commits murder to extract souls. Okay, now that we understand. Okay, think about ISIS. is around killing in order just to kill for no other reason. So to Hashem, Ovid Kahu Gavna Mamish makes exactly the same. That Hashem kills all the firstborn. And, but again, how does this comment over here? What does it have to do over here that Hashem kills the firstborn? What it's saying is that the killing, the killing of the firstborn wasn't just the killing of the firstborn. This was a somehow related to the Jewish people being compared to the chariots of Paro. Now, we're one opposite the other. Paro's chariots kill in order to, 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 to stop life, so to speak, to extract souls. We, Hashem does the same. Okay. And then the Zohar says, um, And when Mashiach comes, what does it say? At the end of days, it says, Who is the one? We turn around and we see. Who is the one that is coming from Edom? With blood-stained garments. God is coming from Batsra. It's talking about the Jewish people are exclaiming when we see Hashem coming back from the exile. And he's with blood-stained clothing coming from Batsra. Okay. What, what is the Zohar saying? So what does this mean? This is supposed to be some kind of an explanation why we're compared to the horses of the chariots of Paro. And the real, real question over here is to ask is, we understand that the other side kills, because that's what they're all about. They're all about darkness. It's evil, and that's what evil... Evil has a thrill, has a pleasure in killing. But holiness is all about life. The Jewish people are all about life. We celebrate life. Our entire existence is life. For Atem, for us, death 
is something that is totally, un, it doesn't belong. And we see death as a, as a very, very temporary thing. And last week we had a whole discussion how our father Yaakov never even died. And in a deeper way, all Jews and all people, every single Yid lives eternally. And eventually there will be Tchias HaMesim, right? So we're all about life, not about death. So to, and especially to put, now from time to time, you know, we need to go to war and we need to do business in order to save ourselves. We understand. But to go and to celebrate and to turn it into a song and to sing the praises of the Jewish people is that we're like the, like the chariots of Paro that kill in order, to, in order to take souls out. doesn't make any sense. And how does this in any way explain what Hashem said to Yaakov, go down to Mitzrayim. Don't be afraid to go down to Mitzrayim because I will make you into a great nation. So here is a fascinating explanation from the Alter Rebbe, from the Balatanya in the Sefer Bi'ure Hazar. So the way he describes it just briefly is as follows. He says, we have to really get a deeper understanding in why we had the exile, the Egyptian exile, and the consequential exiles. All the, all the, all the other exiles, the Jewish people have been in exile for most of our history. So the Talmud says an interesting thing. The Talmud says, and we mentioned this many times at the classes, that the Jewish people, like it's a Gemara Mesechtas Pesachim, and, and I think Daf Pei Zayin, page 87, or Pei Ches. So the Gemara says like this, Hashem did not scatter the Jewish people amongst the nations. Ella, the only reason was, in, in order, I forgot, the words are not coming to me right now, in order to have more converts. The only reason God sent the Jewish people into, into Egypt is that we should have gerim, we should have converts. And the Talmud kind of gives an example, a mushal for that. Is that when a person plants, when a person is sowing a field. So when you sow a field, you take a handful of seeds, and you throw the seeds in the field, and then, but why, do you, why, why, do you, why are you throwing the seeds in the field? What's going to happen to the seeds? The seeds are going to rot. It's because you're expecting that you're putting them in the seed, they're going to rot, and then, they're gonna, and, they're gonna, and then you're going to get the profit. What's the profit? You're going to get the crop. But you have the seeds already. You can take these seeds, especially kernels, and you can make them into bread. The answer is the amount of seeds that you have is nothing in compared to that which you're going to reap, the rewards. A little bit of seeds are going to give you a great return for your money. You're putting in a little bit, it's a small investment, but then you're putting in Adam Zareya Kav Shalchitin, a person puts in a kav, a kav is a small measurement of wheat, and you're going to return and take out of it kama kurim, a kur is a, a, a lot. So you want to multiply it a hundred times, I don't know exactly the ratio of how many, how much grows and compared to what you're putting in. So therefore the Talmud says, it doesn't make any sense to take the Jewish people and put them into exile, right? Unless what? There's going to be a return. And what's going to be return? So the return is we're going to attract converts. We're going to attract converts. If we stay in the land of Israel, we're not going to attract converts because no one is going to see us. But if we're going to mingle with the Gentiles of the world, we're going to extract a whole lot of converts. But the question is, how many converts did were added to the Jewish people? Not so many in our history. Very few converts. And how can we say that that justified? And again, the Gemara's mashal is that you're putting in a kav, one kav, and you want to get out, so you're putting in one pound, of, one pound of, of seeds, and you want to get back a hundred pounds of seeds. Are we going to say that there were a hundred times more converts? According to this, that in the end of exile, we should be returning from the exile. 
the Jewish population should be as follows. There should be, let's say, a million original Jews. And then there should be about a hundred million uh, uh, Gentiles who converted and became Gerim. But that's not the case. There aren't that many Gentiles. In general, we Jews are not into... I mean, there are a lot of Gentiles, not too many converts. And, 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 it's, 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 and it's not... And it's, and, 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 and it's not our thing. We try to discourage. When people try to convert, there's a whole process. It's not easy for someone who wants to convert. They have a very hard time. Because we're not... So then, so, so then what does the Talmud mean by this? So we gave various explanations in earlier classes. But here there's a novelty. And there's something really new. Okay, so in order to understand this, we need to get a little bit Kabbalistic. So we're all familiar with the idea that there are sparks of holiness that are all over the world. And that means that everything in the world could not exist without a certain spark of the divine. And obviously Hashem is holy. So that means there's a spark of holiness, a spark of the divine in every aspect in creation. Or else it couldn't exist. So no matter how mundane or even how dark, or no matter how negative or impure something is, there has to be a spark of Hashem, something good that's enlivening it. How did these sparks get there in the first place? So the Arizal teaches us the concept and and that is a famous concept called Shvira Sakalim, the shattering of the vessels. That there was a primordial collapse before God in the process of creation. Somewhere, somewhere, when God was in the midst of this process of emanating and bringing, creating the worlds, bringing them into existence, there was a certain collapse in that process. And that means great spiritual, godly energy got disconnected from its source, it exploded. Obviously, it doesn't mean a physical explosion, but there was some kind of a break, breakage a cosmic breakage. And these sparks became disconnected. It was intentional. Why was it intentional? Because God wanted to create a world the way it is today, in which there is free choice. And in which there is a... We can serve Him and not, we can choose to serve Him so that we can, He can have His dream of us serving Him and, and, and we can do mitzvahs, but we can have a choice to serve Him and not to serve Him. If, we're, if not, if there wouldn't be a shattering of the vessels then even if God would create us, we would be so attached. We would be naturally attached to Him. We would feel so much that God is creating us every second. We would feel, more than that, we wouldn't even feel like creations. We would just feel like His limbs were part of Him. Because we would realize that 100% of the stuff that make us who we are is Him. So what makes us us? So we would just be Him. And if we would just be Him, then of course we would be doing His will because it would just be Him. Just like your legs do your will because it's you. So there's no pleasure in that. So in order that we shouldn't feel like we're him, we should feel like something else. And not only that, we should even sometimes be able to even think that we can get away five minutes without him and therefore even do something against his will. For that, there needs to be this disconnect. So our consciousness is born from this shvira sakelem, from the shattering of the vessels. So God wanted the shattering of the vessels. Okay? So contrary to the way everybody usually thinks that God created the world, it was a perfect world. And man came and he messed the world up. And then God says, you better clean it up for me again. And we're not too good at it. And we haven't cleaned up too much. And we're still struggling with our own mess that we made. The Arizal introduces a whole revolutionary idea. That it's not us who made the mess, it's God who made the mess. God was the one who dropped the... the he's the one who dropped the plate in the first place. He's the one who dropped the vase and it splintered into a million... And he, and he, but, and he wants us to clean it up. But in order that he should really uh, make sure that we, get, that, we, that, we, that we get to it and we're cleaning up his mess, instead of telling him that he has to clean up his mess, but that we should be cleaning up the mess that God made, God played a little trick on us. You know what the trick was? When he collapsed the Shvira Sakalim and he collapsed the world, he didn't make it collapse all the way. 
So kind of, you know, when there is an earthquake and there is a massive, a massive quake and, you know, God forbid, a lot of buildings and things come down, and, but sometimes you have like certain buildings or homes that are still standing and, or glass that's kind of broken, but it's still standing. It's still held together. And then you just need a small aftershock. And when you have a small aftershock, that later aftershock completely shatters and breaks it completely. Right? So what God did was exactly that. The main earthquake that shattered all the vessels and, and, and completely caused this total fragmentation in all of creation happened before even the world was created. The world is created with the shards. But, here's the thing. When God created, He pretended it's a perfect world. And then Adam and Eve, when they were in Gan Eden, when they ate from the tree of knowledge, when they weren't supposed to, that was an aftershock. And so really, let's understand, why did they sin? Does it make any sense that they sinned? They were just created. Half a day earlier, they were created. Why did they go and they sinned? The first day, couldn't they behave themselves for a day? And the answer is, they were born into, they were born into a broken world. It was broken already. And therefore, it, inevitable, it had to break. It was going to break. And what happens? Adam and Chava ate from the tree of knowledge. And that was the final, that, we, that, gave, that brought the aftershock. And then everything broke. And God says to Adam, look what a mess you did. I created this, and you made a mess. Now you better clean it up. And I sound like I'm, 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 I'm being, uh, that, I, that I'm making this up, but you see the Medrash says this. The Medrash says that the entire sin of the Eitz Adas was Neira Alila, it was, it was a scheme. Hashem makes a scheme on Adam Arish. It was, I'm not saying that he was predisposed, that he, ha, that he predispositioned to sin, he had to sin. There was free choice, but very little. And in the end, Adam did sin, caused every, a primordial collapse. And when he did that, he caused everything to become mixed good and bad. And sparks of holiness fell everywhere. Now here's an amazing thing. The primary element of the collapse is that holy souls, Nishamis, holy souls, fell out of Adam, of Adam and Chava's Nishama. Adam and Eve, they contained within themselves all the Nishamis, all the souls, for all generations. And then, as a result of eating of the, the eight Sadas, Part of the breakage that happened was that Adam Arisha's neshama broke him, his own soul. And there was a major spill of millions of souls came pouring out of his neshama. And as it fell, it fell, and where did it fall? It fell into the forces of the other side, into the klipa. And klipa became enriched with millions of millions of holy souls. Now, um, more specifically, what, what does it mean when we say the souls that fell? Where exactly did they fall? They fell into the world population. So when you have the 70 nations, 70 nations contain the nations themselves, each got a deposit of Jewish souls. Now we're not talking about physical nations down here. We're talking about there are 70 ministering angels. Each angel is a source for a nation. And everything that that nation has, all the people, animal, plants, minerals, everything that that nation possesses, is the energy of it is in that angel. Those angels above received from the spillage of these souls. Each one of them took literally millions of souls into their position, possession. Some of them more, some of them less. 
Now here's the thing. These neshamas, oh wait. Now, when that spillage took place, so the Arizal, this is all discussed in Sefer HaGilgulim from the Arizal, later described at great length in Sefer Chesed Lavram, which is a great Kabbalist, further elucidating on the teachings of the Arizal, where he explains a fascinating thing. How did the, how did the neshamas end up in the hands of the 70 ministering angels? Well, there was a certain system. You know, when the Torah describes, right at the beginning of creation, this Torah describes a big river, a powerful river coming out of Aden. Aden, there is a river that is emanating from Aden. And that river flows from Aden. It says, and the river goes to water the garden. And then it says, once the river comes out of the garden, it forks into four rivers. And from there it separates into four rivers. What are the four rivers? One of them is the Nile River, Nilois. It's called uh, Pishain in the, um, in the Chumash. Uh, the other one is called the Gichain. The Gichain River is not clear which river it is. There's different, different explanations of which river it is. Then there is a third river called the Paras, the Euphrates River. It's the fourth river. And then there is the Tigris River. So these are the four rivers that there are. Okay, Now, and this is what the, and it's interesting. In Bereshis, the Torah goes into a long discussion about these rivers, where each one flows. But let's understand something. There is a great, met, met, um, um, there is there is a great metaphysical meaning to these rivers. See, these physical rivers are physical incarnations of something much higher. See, what's really happening over here is when you're thinking about a flow of water. What's water? Water is life. So a river means a flow of life. So there is a flow of life that's flowing from God. It's flowing from God. When the flow of life is flowing from Hashem, it goes through Gan Eden, which is the world of holiness, spiritual levels. And then when once it comes out of Gan Eden, it forks into four rivers, means it separates and starts becoming a life force for the unholy. That's what it means, Misham Yipared. Yipared means separated. Separated means something that's not attached and one with God. Something that feels itself apart from Hashem. So it ends up into the Klippa. Klippa is disconnected. Now, so what happens now? There are four waterways, four flows of life. And they flow where to? Into the, these waterways, give life to all the spiritual forces of darkness. Eventually, after many, many, many curves, you ever see a river as it's snaking and curving, who receives, who's at the, who lives, who's at the end of these rivers? The 70 ministering angels of each country. That's where they receive their flow from God through these rivers. That's why where does world, where, where do cities, especially in the olden days when they didn't have the sophistication that we have today to build plumbing and the like, where did everybody live? Well, the cities were next to the rivers. Right? Because that's where you have your water. So just like physically it is that way, spiritually it is that way. The liver, the water supplies. In, in, in Egypt, the Egypt was so, was so successful because the Nile gave them so always, it always gave them access to water. So spiritually, there is the water. So here is what happened. Initially, initially before Adam sinned, before Adam and Chava sinned, the amount of energy that would have flown, the rivers would have been very, very slow trickle wouldn't be a gushing river. The rivers, once they leave Gan Eden, and once they separate, and once they start going into the unholy, they would have been just a, a very minor flow. 
But once Adam and Chava sinned, then they caused a massive spillage in Gan Eden. Their souls broke open, and there was this powerful gush of souls. Their souls spilled into the river. And once it came out of Gan Eden, it split into the four rivers. And then millions of souls started floating downstream the Nile. Millions of souls were floating downstream the Tigris River. Millions of souls were floating down the Euphrates River. And then the fourth river, the Gihon River. And who is catching, who's fishing the stone of these souls? At the other end are the ministering angels above of the forces of the unholy. And, and they're catching these neshamas and taking them in and becoming a rich. Now, why do they want these souls? Let's understand for a very simple reason. These souls are pieces of God from above because Adam Arishon, Adam was made in the image of God. He's a chelek alakai, he has a piece of Hashem from him. Literally, these are super potent, powerful forces of energy. A Jewish soul is unbelievable. And that's why they want these neshamas. And these souls will give them strength. These souls will give them power. These souls will give them wealth. It's all coming from the souls. Now we understand. These are initially spiritual rivers. That's, as we said earlier, that snake their way through all the worlds. As they make their way giving life. And it's flowing into the klipa. But then it materializes down here. It manifests in the four physical rivers that are down here. And here you have... Nations. Now, here's an amazing thing. All the 70 nations derive their energy from one of these four rivers. So you can take the 70 nations and divide them. I don't know, divide them by four. You'll get about, I think, 13 or, I don't know, no, I forget, maybe 18. 18 river, 18, um, around 18, 19 um, nations around each river receiving. That's why you will find, and that's the idea of why the Jewish people go four times into exile. There are four exiles. The reason why there are four exiles is because the Jewish people need to go down the river to fetch the souls that they've lost. We have to retrieve our souls. These neshamas need to be taken back from the clutches of the klipa, and they need to be brought back into the realms of holiness. So it's like the river expeditions that when they went down the Mississippi River, exploring the river. Look at the gullahs that way. The Jewish people are on an expedition. They hop onto a boat and they're oaring and we're all rowing the boat, rowing down the river and we're looking for souls. The first river we went down was the river, the Nile River, because the biggest deposit of souls fell in. The biggest spillage went into Egypt. That's why there was no nation in the world, there was no empire in the world as powerful as the ancient Egyptians. Their empire lasted in the end for over a thousand years and they were very, very, very powerful. Why were they so strong? But at their height was before the Jewish people came down to Egypt. The reason why they were so, so and interesting, the Torah describes that in the river, in the Nile, the Torah in Beresha says, over there is the gold and the crystal and the onyx. Why does the Torah describe all these seemingly unimportant things? We have to understand that this is the spiritual gold. Over there is the gold, the souls, the powerful souls that are the energy of all of creation are in these rivers. And we, the Jewish people, need to go back to take these neshamas. How do we go get our souls back? How do we do that? So we go into exile. When we go into exile and we live in that country. So when we're living in the geographic location in that country, and we're under the domain or the dominion, so to speak, over the king over that country. Like for most of the history, the Jewish people have been in exile under the dominion of a foreign king, of a foreign people. And here's the amazing thing that I've seen in this mind. Usually we say that the way we elevate sparks of holiness is through learning Torah and doing mitzvahs. That is of course true. 
Through learning Torah, doing mitzvahs, we elevate sparks. But there's something more than that. Just having children. When Jewish people live in a foreign land, when we live in Egypt, and we have children, the children that are born are souls. This is so novel. This idea is so crazy. These souls are souls that were trapped in, the, in, the, in this ministering angel of Egypt. He had all these neshamas in his, in his storages, empowering him to rebel against God. And obviously we understand how painful it is to these neshamas when they are held captive by these spiritual forces of Egypt in this higher realms. Now what happens is when the Jewish people come into their country, these neshamas are released because they're having, as, as they're having children. Every baby needs a soul. Where is the soul going to come from? The soul has to come from the minister. The minister angel is in charge of providing a soul for every... So he has to release the neshamas. So he starts releasing these souls and the souls are now coming back to the Jewish people. And being that there were so many millions of neshamas, that's why God made the population grow exponentially. If they were having six at a time, 12 at a time, or 60 at a time. Like we spoke earlier, we were literally pulling these souls out. And now we also understand the amazing thing. How come the Egyptians were becoming so frantic? And they didn't know what to do. And they were screaming, Gewald! How can we stop this? They didn't know what to have this major, major meeting. They sat down. What are we going to do to stop the world, the Jewish population? They have to do it. Why do they have to do it? Because you understand, this is literally draining their energy. They know they're taking their life out of them. Literally, they're sucking the life out of them. Because their entire power were these Jewish neshamas that were inside of them. And just by the, and that's why that's all we have to do is children and children and children. Until we will take all the souls, once we have all the souls, we can leave. Now, not everyone has to necessarily leave. The very fact that they were born into Jewish bodies in this world, the extraction happened already. This will also explain why we said earlier the merit of the Jewish woman, we went out of Egypt because if we, the Jewish women would have not have acted in this heroic way to have so many children. To have, then we could have stayed in Egypt. Who knows Allah? Because we were going to stay there until we extract every neshama from the hands of the klip. So we were there. We managed to, and this will also explain the other question we asked. How come once Egypt tried to stop them by separating the men from the women and it didn't work? As we said, God said, God said, you're going to beat me. I told them they're going to be many. They tried again by killing the babies when they were being born. That didn't work. What was the next thing? Paro was frantic at the last thing. What did he do? He ran. And without any, having any other option, he commanded he should take the babies and throw them in the Nile. Now this I have to say, it doesn't say in the discourse. So this is my own thought, but I think it's so obvious. The reason why they were throwing the babies back into the Nile, because that's where these neshamas came from. They wanted to keep them in the Nile. Because he does explain that, that the, the, the flow of souls were coming through the river. See, this now what's happening over there. There's a massive tug of war going on between Egypt and the Jewish people. We're pulling the souls into Israel. They're pulling the souls out. And this is what it means that God put the Jewish people amongst the nations only so that we should have converts. Who is converts? Who are the converts? Converts are not the Egyptians who converted. The converts in the sense of a year are all the Jewish people born in Egypt. They're all converts because they were all souls that were inside the belly of the klipa. And now the, the, the klipa has to, has to give back these neshamas to the Jewish people. What happened once we finished having the amount of children that we needed to have? We left Egypt and Egypt was decimated. And the final expression was that, Vayareg Hashem kol 
that even the little bit of energy that Egypt had initially was taken away from them. Even that which they would have had on their own was extracted. And 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 basically it collapsed. Or at least it never went back to being the empire it was before. Now when we finish doing this in Egypt, we went and we built the land of Israel, we we built up the Beis Amigdash, we were there, we lived a beautiful life, learning Torah, doing mitzvahs, but then God said this unfinished business. It's very nice that you're living over here, but we got to go down the second river. So came the next Gullus, and we hopped onto the boat again, and we went down the next river. And this was the river of Gullus Bavel. And whether this is the Euphrates River, whatever it is, you know, the Euphrates is compared, it actually is connected to Gullus Edom. The next river, maybe this was the Gihon River, in which we had the exile of Bavel and Paras together. We spent there 70 years extracting the souls. And again, the main thing is the Jewish population born on a foreign land. Then we did it a third time when we went down the river of um, during the next exile, the exile of the Greeks, the Greek exile, Gaulus Yavan, and finally the Gaulus Edom, which is over two, close to 2,000 years, we're, down, we're going down the fourth river, extracting the souls that need to be born to the Jewish people, and Jews that are born in all the different countries, mainly in all, all the European countries and all the Western countries, and also in all the, all the countries, but the Gaulus of Edom, all the Jews that were born, these are all called Gerim. We are all Gerim. In addition to the converts that do convert, but in addition to that, it's the neshamas that are born during the time of exile. These are all the neshamas that need to be taken out. This is the deeper reason that the Arizal explains, the deep mystery of exile. This will also explain why God says to Yaakov Avinu, I will make you into a great nation over there. Don't be afraid to go down to Mitzrayim, because I will make you into a great nation over there. As we had asked earlier, why can't we become a great nation over here? And the answer is you can't do it over here. The souls aren't here. I need you to go to Egypt, to Mitzrayim, to go and take out the souls. Now we'll understand what the Zohar is saying to the, to the um, horses and the chariots of Paro. I have compared you, my bride. Understand, we draw a certain parallel over here. What happened as a result of our work of just having children in Egypt was that we took out the soul of Egypt. So the Zohar is saying, take a look. On the other side, we might feel really bad. We might feel really bad and say, well, that's really not nice. No, we're taking away. So first of all, we're not stealing anything because we're taking back what really belongs to us. Because initially all these souls were in Kedusha and holiness. They fell out into the unholy and now we just have to take it back, number one. Number two, we realize that we're doing the exact same thing like the other side does. See, the other side engages in the exact same business. That's what the Zohar says. Just like the other side, the chariots on the left side, what do they do? They kill and extract souls. What does that mean? They kill and they extract souls. We have to do this briefly. But here's the idea. We know there's a, there is a, an entity that we're very familiar with. He's called um, Yetzirah. Yetzirah is an evil inclination. Now evil inclination, some of us are pretty comfortable with our own Yetzirah. Not only that, sometimes we really feel that our Yetzirahs are really our best friend. Because he's the one who generally generates a good time. All fun and exciting and sometimes enjoyable things come from the Yetzirah. In the end, we end up regretting it. We feel terrible about it. But for the time, for, at times, the Yetzirah seems to be the guy who's always looking out to make things um, lovely and wonderful. However, the Talmud says that the Yetzirah has another face. Besides him being the Yetzahara, he's also called the Satan. Because the moment after he finishes convincing you to do a sin, he leaves you. You ever wonder why a minute later you don't even feel like, you wonder why you ever did that sin. 
And the reason is the Yetzirah went away. He left you. He's not even there anymore. You know why? He left your body. Where did he go? He went up there to bring, to, 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 to slander. He goes up and he becomes the prosecuting angel. That very Yetzirah that's in the heart, giving, you the, giving the person the enticement to sin. Once the deed was done, now he has a report to give. So he becomes the slandering angel that goes up in heaven and becomes the prosecuting angel. And what is he calling for? He's calling for punishment. He's asking God that because this person sinned, this person deserves to die. If he has his way, and if he presents a really, really good case, which he's very good at doing, um, and he's given permission, he takes on a third role. He puts on his third uniform. Now he becomes the executor of that judgment. And he flies back to the person, comes right back down, and becomes the angel of death. So, who ha Sahara, Who ha-Satan? Who ha The same being. So now we've got to really, really watch out for this Yetzirah. It looks like he's our friend, but he's not really our friend. He's really our enemy. But you've got to ask yourself. That's a very, 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 very terrible enemy. It's a really vicious enemy. Someone who is setting you up. It's like, you know, it's one thing when a person does something criminal and they get caught. You get caught, okay. So you know you have to pay the price. But the aggravation. When you know that it was the FBI themselves who made a setup, and then they set up a sting. Because they got you, to, and then you would have never have done it. But they set up the, 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 the whole thing to get, to entice. The, when they decide they want to take someone down, the CIA or the FBI, they can do it. They'll go and do something to set you up, to entice you to do something wrong. Once you do something wrong, then, uh, and then they prosecute, and then they'll throw you into jail and throw the keys away. Right? They can do that. So you got to wonder, but they have to really hate that person for whatever, they have a very good reason to do that where they're not just catching a criminal who's already a criminal, but to get a law-abiding citizen to become a criminal, and then to do him away, that's really not fear. So you got to wonder, why does the Yetzirah do that? How does he have such hatred to the person? And the answer is, he doesn't hate us, he's not really because he hates the human being, it's not that he wants to really harm us, it's simply because that's the way he makes a living. Everybody has to have a profession in which they earn a livelihood. The other side, the side of the unholy, has no life on their own. They can't make a living. The only way they can make a living is if they rob and they steal from holiness. Holiness has life. How are they going to rob from holiness? When they get someone holy to do something unholy, that gives them a, a grip on that neshama, on that soul, and they can end up siphoning energy. Now, they can siphon energy every time a person sins, a person opens up kind of a little tube in which they can, like a little straw, and the clippers are drinking, literally like parasites, they're drinking blood, like vampires, from the soul, spiritual blood. But primarily, their real grip on a soul is when they accomplish it fully. When they accomplish it fully means when they get a person to sin, then they manage to prosecute, and they can get, God forbid, when the clipper gets a death warrant, on that individual, capital punishment. And then the, the angel of death comes down and takes the soul. They take that neshama to their feeding grounds and they're literally eating off that soul. They're taking energy off that soul. It's a horrible thought. Let's not think about it too long. But the idea is that that's how they get energy. So that's what the Zohar says. And therefore, the, 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 the Alter Rebbe says an interesting thing. He says, it's not that they're, in a sense, as vicious it's because they're doing this for a living. He says, and he gives it, compares it to a thief. A thief, there's a pasuk in Mishlei where it says, Al don't be cheap. Don't look down at a, at a, at a thief and say, you don't, don't be disgusted. Because 
Kirov, who he's hungry. It's one thing when someone is a criminal and he has millions of dollars and he's engaging in criminal activity. It's another, it's another thing when the guy is a pauper, he doesn't have what to feed his family, and he stole. That's not justified. But at least we can understand the guy needed to feed his hungry children. So he did it. So the same idea as the clip, he says he's a gun. They're called ganavim, they're called thieves, and they need to get a Jew to sin. That's why he makes a very, very powerful statement, and I had to share this. His statement over here is, L'chein, hear these words, Iker achra, the main desire of the other side, L'achti adam to get a person to sin, Mitam metzias parnasasam, this is where they get their parnasa, they get their livelihood, V'shefachiyusam, and their life. That's why you wonder. You, did, you, 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 you beat your Yetzirah, you didn't sin. But he will come back tomorrow with a new enticement. You beat him tomorrow, he comes back a third time. And then a fourth time. And then he adds even more. This line I think is a very, 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 very important thing to know. Because sometimes we beat ourselves up and we become so frustrated with the fact that we feel that we have like non-stop Yetzirah. And we feel like we must be the worst human being in the world. And let me explain you something. He says like this, Anybody that has in his soul more holiness, the other side is, will, will go after this individual more and more. If you feel a burning desire nonstop to sin, know that it must be you have a very rich soul. You have so much holiness in your soul, Klippa wants to continuously come and get a drink. That's why a person that's not as rich in spiritual energy has far less temptation. The more a person has holiness, the more temptation they have. And he gives the example, where are the thieves going to go? They're going to go to a broken down shack at the end of town? They want to rob a bank. They want to rob a bank. They want to rob a jewelry store. No, you're a jewelry store of holiness. Don't beat yourself up. Understand. It's because of the richness of your soul that the klipa is out to get you. It's, 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 it's an amazing thing. In a different mimer, not here, the Alter Rebbe even goes so far and says when a person feels so down and you feel, you know what? I sinned so much. God is not interested in me. I'm already a loser. I'm finished. I'm done. He says, well, ask yourself a simple question. Do you still have an appetite to sin? That's your son. If you still have an appetite to sin, means that there's still holiness in you. Because the moment the person has no kedusha, the, the, the animal soul leaves them alone, the other side leaves them alone, you have no desire anymore. The very fact that you still have an appetite to do a sin is a sign that there's still kedusha there and there's still holiness. But this is an amazing idea. So therefore, what do they, what do, they do? What do they do? They actually kill, that's what the Zohar says, the other, the chariots of the unholy, what do they do? They kill in order to extract souls. They're all, they're do, Meaning, they're trying to take Neshamas from Kedusha into their realm. So since they do that, the Zohar says the other chariots do the exact the same. We have to go in and act in the same way, but it's our method of killing is different. Their method of killing is to get a person to sin. Our method of killing is to go inside a certain country and to have Jewish children... They have Jewish children. These children are souls of Kedusha trapped and the, in the soul of the unholy. Bring these children in the world. Also through Torah and mitzvahs and the like in which we drain the energy of the other side back into Kedusha. Take back what's really ours. And that really was the story of the Egyptian exile. This was the Egyptian exile and this is all the... And that's what it says when the Jewish people are coming back 
from the final exile, Miza is Boima Batra, who's the one coming from Batra, Hamad's Begadim, with blood-stained clothing. So people try to always read into these things of violence and Armageddon and death. We're not talking about that. We're talking about spiritually. There is an extraction that happened, which brings about blood, meaning the, the life force is taken back to where it belongs. And what happens to the nations? So in Egypt, they collapsed. They were destroyed. But as we deal with our future redemption, the nations that, that have been rectified become rectified through this because their energy gets reconnected to holiness and then the, at least the better of the world becomes attached to Kedusha and to holiness. It's not like we take the energy and run away with it. It means that we bring the nations along in this elevation and in this, in this purification. And that is the story of the exile. And that again, as we, we said earlier, explains why it's such a mitzvah, it's such a mitzvah to have children. And the, the, uh, the, um, the, uh, and, and that brings the geula. That as the sages say, ain't ben David all neshamas come down. But here is a new explanation. It's not just that the neshamas from above have to come down. The various different places and with Jewish people. And this explains why the Jewish people, if you look at our history, most Jews were born in the diaspora. Most Jews throughout history were born. Um, in, 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 and as we went, said earlier, even those that, that never made it out of Egypt, it's okay. I mean, it was bad that they didn't get to, to receive the Torah, but it was in their birth, it wasn't in vain, because their very fact that they came down into this world, these neshamas, we retreat back to holiness. At this point, we've already completed the work. And we've already finished extracting all the souls. And now we are ready to go back enriched to the land of Israel with every single Jewish neshama. Now, which we know, it says that when after Mashiach is going to come, uh, the population of the Jewish people is going to, be, is going to grow, as it says, like, like the sand, because all these souls are now going to have to have bodies. and It's all going to come back down in Gufim, but now rightfully retrieved and part of the Jewish people. And we're going to be, as the Pasuk says, Kahal Gadol, a great Kahal Yashuvu Heina, are going to return over here um, to receive the ultimate love and the ultimate light of Hashem. May we merit the redemption now. Bye, bye.